0: Welcome to the podcast, this is the DishCast with Andrew Sullivan. I have a great guest today, someone I met in Penn Station six years ago by chance, talked to about cannabis regulation. He's uh, a graduate of, from Brown University. He has a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit. Uh, as a member of the New York Bar, it says in his book, he has been practicing international for 15 years. He lives outside Washington D.C. with his wife and daughters and has spent the last few years disappeared down a rabbit hole or rather catacombs of ancient history and the origins of Christianity in what I think is probably one of the most interesting and significant books to come out. buried a little bit because this awful election is going on, but this will last longer than that. I want to start, Brian, by asking you a very simple question. This all comes from a very deep and ancient place. The religion, as you call it, with no name. And the book, by the way, I should have said, is The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. What are the origins of psychedelics in human history? When did people first start figuring That when they ate a mushroom or had some infected barley or any other substance, that they figured out, wow, this this has taken me somewhere quite serious and spiritual. We're not talking about entertainment or or giggling or goofing off. We're talking about an insight
1: into the ultimate reality. When did humans start doing this? That's a question I would love to answer. And the way I'm gonna answer it for you. I hope uh, shows my methodology. So I'll start the answer this way. Two weeks ago, I had one of the most fascinating conversations of my entire life with Lee Berger, who is National Geographic Explorer in Residence, the paleoanthropologist in South Africa. He's known amongst other things for discovering previously undiscovered hominids like Homo naledi there in South Africa. Which goes back we think 200 to 300,000 years ago to put a time scale on it however the morphology of this homo naledi is so archaic it clearly reaches back two three million years and the reason that I, I i called lee berger in south africa is to ask him about the stoned ape theory which i know you've probably heard of uh this this was uh forwarded by terence mckenna in the 90s it's the idea that early hominids would have probably come across uh, psychotropic plants, in particular fungi, uh, perhaps millions of years in the past, and had what could have been a spiritual experience for the uninitiated. Uh, So it's, it's a wonderfully entertaining theory. There's lots of great YouTubing you can do on that. I'm interested in the science. So I called Lee Berger to see if the stone date theory was even worth exploring. And together, we kind of came up with this uh, newer, uh, more academic profile. I like to call it the pharmaphilic hominid theory. Well, and that's just a idea. fancy name
0: for the stone ape, right? Is, is, is that is that is that, is
1: that <laughs> really? I'm not very good at branding. That that's not that's not going to be a meme. Uh, but I, I, I do think it will engage the academic community, and Lee's on board. Uh, colleagues of his are on board. I'm actively talking to people at Harvard about this. Uh, I think this stuff is ripe for investigation because we have the technology like dental calculus analysis, which we can get into, and fancy things like gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, which can actually dig out active alkaloids that were present in in the ancient diet from tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years ago. So I haven't seen any data yet, but I'm looking for it. That's That's
0: the interesting thing about this book, which charts the history of religion and psychedelics, <clears throat> including Christianity, which we'll get to in due course. Uh, the Greeks, of course, had this ceremony, which I, to be honest with you, I thought I knew a little bit about ancient Greece. Um, I've you know, read my Plato and Aristotle and my Cicero, and I did Latin all the way through, and I had no idea this place existed. Something that you call the Temple of Eleusis. It's a place where every year, it's annual, right? every year, leading, important Greeks and Romans uh, would go to this strange temple, what is it, 13, 14 miles outside of Athens, and drink this wine, uh, this potion, overnight, right? It was an all-night event. Uh, And let me just quote to begin with Cicero, who went there. Uh, And he said this, in the first century B.C., for it appears to me, this is Cicero, that among the many exceptional and divine things your Athens has produced and contributed to human life, nothing is better than these mysteries. Well, that's that's quite a statement, given the legacy of Greece uh, to Rome and to Western civilization. So he singles out these mysteries as the most important thing that Greece gave us. Um, and then he says, For by means of them we have been transformed from a rough and savage way of life to the state of humanity, and have been civilized. By means of them, we became civilized. Uh, Just as they are called initiations, so in actual fact we have learned from them the fundamentals of life and have grasped the basis not only for living with joy, but also for dying with a better hope. Now, I've read Cicero, (laughs) and school had to translate him, that doesn't sound like it. He sounds kind of a little, a little uh, taken aback by all this, a little, a little uh, excited, excitable even. Cicero never struck me as that excitable. But here he is raving on about this incredible gift the ancient Greeks gave to Rome. And I have never heard of this before. So tell us, he went to the temple of Eleusis. What was that temple? What did it look like, first of all?
1: Right. So it, w- it looked like your average Greek temple. You think about the pillars and columns. Uh, there are 42 uh, wind-battered columns that remain from the site in Eleusis, which, as you mentioned, is about 13 miles northwest of Athens. Today, it's a very small town, Elefcina. And by a strange twist of fate, uh, which is hard to believe, it's actually going to be the European capital of culture next year, of all years which I found kind of surprising, a lot of attention on this little town of Eleusis. So the initiates would go there, uh, arrive at the temple for this all night ceremony, uh, during which at some point, and we don't really know when or how, uh, but they would imbibe a potion that the Greeks called a koukion, which in Greek simply means mixed potion. And from some of the literature that survives, we think it was a potion that consisted of barley, water, and mint. And according to these initiates, Cicero, among them, and the very practical, Marcus Aurelius, after him, that practical Stoic, uh, they almost universally attest to this beatific vision. And I use that word, even though it's called from Christianity, because Karl Kerenyi, uh, a famous uh, uh, scholar of Greek, used that exact phrase, the beatific vision, to describe what these initiates describe themselves, which is meeting a goddess, confronting death, overcoming the limitations of the physical body, and in their words, being guaranteed the afterlife. Uh, thing is, it was all secret, so everything I'm telling you are just hints and clues that we can piece together from the testimony. So, a kind of Burning
0: Man for the ancients, except sacred and selective, right? Only the elites went here. It wasn't open to everybody, right? It was it was kept for
1: a relatively few people. Am I am I right in that, or not? I don't know. I I struggle with that myself. The testimony that survives is from the elites, because that's who was writing. So we have testimony from Plato, who calls it the holiest of mysteries, and Pindar and Sophocles, and Cicero and Marcus Aurelius. But if if you read through the literature, technically, these mysteries were open to anybody if they could fulfill two conditions, two simple conditions. Number one, you have to speak some Greek. And number two, you can't have killed anybody. And as long as you have fulfilled those two conditions, you are theoretically welcome to the Temple of Demeter, which survived, by the way, from about 1500 B.C. to the 4th century A.D. That is to say, as long as Christianity itself has been around. And you're right. Not many folks have heard of this, Andrew.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, the Christians destroyed it. Um, they took it. They really laid waste to it in, in a massive repression in the, what, the, in, the in, in, in the 4th century A.D.,
1: Right. Yeah. Um, yes. At the end of the fourth century.
0: So we're thinking they're going down into this into this vault, this temple. They're drinking this wine and they're having some kind of obviously psychedelic experience of some sort. What's the evidence? The hard, cold evidence that this was psychedelic. What? Why were they not just having some really good spiked wine? Why? How do we get this idea that? This is because of the specific psychedelic elements in those potions.
1: That's a question I've been trying to answer for 12 years. Uh, I mean that seriously. Uh, You know, I'm just a normal dude. Uh, I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C. with this background in classics. And this all came back on my radar in 2007 uh, through an article in The Economist. And I was reading about the very first experiments that came out of Johns Hopkins about these volunteers uh, and their one and only dose of psilocybin the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And they would use language very similar to what was stuck in my brain about the mysteries of Eleusis. Mm. Uh, Two-thirds described their one and only dose as among the most meaningful of their entire lives. And by the way, that statistic has remained incredibly consistent. So it's now been happening for 20 years. The figure now, if you ask Roland Griffiths at Hopkins like I did, the figure now is 75%, 75% from one dose of psilocybin, we'll call it either the most meaningful experience of their lives or among the top five. And of and course, the,
0: the yeah. other fascinating aspect of this is that psilocybin is also now being used in hospices uh, and for those who are dealing with end-of-life issues. And what's so fascinating about what comes out from the ancient Greeks is this notion that you will somehow overcome death by confronting death, that if you... You will, through this potion or this process, die in some way and so cease to be afraid of the actual death that is coming for you. In other words, you will become so at one with the universe and so at peace with your place in it. In fact, you will lose your place in it and become it. Now, having done mushrooms on many occasions, uh, I, too, am completely struck by the parallels between the way they describe their experiences and the way I would describe the shocking experiences that occurred to me. Now, what I think is interesting in your case, and I want to point this out, is that you have deliberately decided never to take any of these psychedelic uh, substances, these medicines, um, so that you can keep a completely disinterested scholarly focus on just the basics. I have a suspicion, however, that if you did do these things uh once or twice, you would totally instantly resonate with stuff. It resonates with me phenomenally. And and it helps me feel like not such a freak. Um because uh, when I was young, in my younger days, clubbing days and so on, um, psychedelics were used and Everyone else was dancing and having a good time. I was sitting in a corner pondering the incarnation. I was was genuinely spiritually uh, overwhelmed by these these drugs differently than than others. And it might be because my brain was conditioned to those those ideas and those thoughts. And somehow this chemical somehow brought them back into my mind and gave them meaning, actually. Um, So this happened to Lucis. People would go there. They would have these wonderfully peaceful and liberating experiences that would last them a long time, right? They weren't going there every week. Um, And then what happens? Uh, Do people uh, within this Greek world, because it's entirely a Greek world, take this? Do they figure out what this potion is? Is there some kind of escape? Is there some kind of way in which the secrets of the sacraments which were, as I understand in the Temple of Lucis, restricted to women in terms of their production and their making. That's an interesting thing. Why did the Greeks make the mixing of these drugs and this this potion? Why did they ensure that only women had that role? Why weren't men involved in making uh, the psychedelics?
1: I think it speaks to a very long tradition. And Carl Ruck writes writes about this. Uh, and it's important to point out this is not my idea, this is not my thesis. Uh, I'm I'm following up on scholarship from nineteen seventy-eight in a very controversial book called The Road to Eleusis, whereby Gordon Wasson, i.e. the man who discovered quote unquote psilocybin mushrooms in nineteen fifty-five, and Albert Hofmann, who synthesized LSD in nineteen thirty-eight, teamed up with this guy, Karl Ruck, who then was the chair of the classics department at Boston University. So they're the ones who unleash this idea of the psychedelic cookie on the world, and they are excoriated. Talk about the wrong book at the wrong time at the height of the war on drugs. Uh, so this it kind of sits there and languishes, and, and Karl Ruck's career goes into a, a total nosedive. And again, it comes back on my radar uh, in uh, 2007, 2008, and part of the reason uh, is because of these female uh, initiate rites. Uh, and uh, Ruck writes a lot about this. Um, it's not, Eleusis is really the repository of knowledge that could possibly stretch back to the Stone Age. And and I mean that. At the very beginning of the conversation, we talked about the stoned ape theory. In my book, I start around 12,000 years ago, and I'm looking for the brewing of beer uh, because we think the Kukion was a kind of rudimentary beer with the barley and the water and the mint. So I try and trace that back to the Stone Age and somewhat successfully do so because there are scientists who found evidence of fermentation 12,000 years ago, 13,000 years ago. But when I'm sitting in the office of the world's top beer scientist in Munich, Martin Zarnkow, he tells me that brewing was the women's art. And we think this stretches back a very long time. It's not until the industrialization of beer brewing during the Reformation that it becomes uh, the male pursuit. Uh, so mixing but beer, why? mixing wine. I, I, I want
0: to know why the Greeks did this. I mean, is it is it's not that women belong in the kitchen, is, is it? I mean, I don't know what it is, but it, it it I want to get to the root of that because it's it's interesting in its parallel with early Christianity, which was dominated well dominated by but very much influenced and peopled by women. Uh, yeah. Uh, is, do the Greeks explain
1: ever why it was just women involved in this? I don't think we ever get a good explanation from a man. Uh, it's mainly men who, who who left us the evidence from the ancient world. Karl Ruck has this really poetic language, and he says that it's not just women; it's older women, mm. right? And women with pharmacological expertise, and as they get older, past the childbearing age, as they're approaching death. He says that their, their compact with the metaphysical sources of life really begin to blossom. And it's this idea of the elder grandmother, the grandmother's wisdom. Uh, now, interestingly, in Christianity, it's, it's that, that aspect of the virgin that is missing, right? There, in, in, in mythology and folklore, I read about this in the book, uh, the concept of women in the ancient Greek world, like in other traditional societies, you see the, the woman in three main roles, as the virgin, the mother, the grandmother. What we have left in Christianity is mary's virginity prized more than anything, and obviously her her maternity, her maternity of Jesus, but you never see her in in blossom as as, as that elder woman passing down knowledge from one woman to another, uh, according to the Greeks. It was women who passed what Ruck calls the secret of secrets what a What a great phrase well, of course Mary was assumed into heaven, so we don 't know how old
0: she got, um, but we might imagine. Mary Magdalene, for example, getting old. Um, uh, but so, so these women are doing it. They're creating these interesting potions. Uh, and beer was, seems to be the original way of doing this, of adding stuff into the, uh, the alcoholic fermented beer. What kind of stuff were they putting in it? Just give me a, a variety of ingredients that they put in this beer that would,
1: that would do what you say it does. So we don't have a lot of evidence, uh, but I went out of my way through these archaeobotany journals, decades old, to find whatever evidence there was. And I did find evidence uh, for beer that was spiked with different hallucinogens. And of all places, I don't know why, it shows up in Spain. And in Spain, of all places, I found actual archaeobotanical data of scientists who went in and tested these vessels, like at the Necropolis of Las Mm Ruedas in Spain from the 2nd century BC. And it was beer that was spiked with hyoscyamine. And hyoscyamine is one of these tropane alkaloids that could have come from one of the nightshade plants. And this is that traditional witchy European uh, plant. It, it includes uh, like henbane, for example, or mandrake, or deadly nightshade. This is the kind of stuff uh, that you find in these ancient containers. And I also found um, uh, beer that was spiked with ergot. And that, that it's that natural fungus that grows on all these cereal grains. And it was uh, the hypothesis of Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck that, in fact, the beer kukion at Eleusis was spiked with ergot. Because remember, again, Hoffman is the guy who's able to synthesize LSD from ergot. And after years and years of looking for it, I actually found the hard data at this site in Catalonia in Spain of a little chalice of beer two inches high that was actually spiked with ergot in the 2nd century BC, not too long after these classical mysteries in Greece. It's just in a part of the ancient world that most historians and most classicists are not thinking about when you think about ancient Greece, but the Greeks were there. How
0: did this go into become spiked wine? When did the beer become wine? And and you're saying that that Eleusis was beer. It wasn't wine. Right. So so, so, where did spiked wine come from? Where were its origins geographically, historically? Where did that start to arrive? What's the, what's the evidence of the first
1: creation of,
0: of, of, um, of spiked wine?
1: So, again, I'm look, looking at the scientific data. I followed the scholarship of a guy named Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's been doing some of this archaeochemical work, the really pioneering stuff, as, as long ago as, as, as the 90s. And, and he is responsible for, for tracing some of the oldest archaeobotanical, archaeochemical data for, for wine. And when you say spiked, it's not necessarily spiked with some of the most interesting stuff, but it is resonated uh, with things like terebinth from a very early age. Sorry, so, resonated
0: a- for ter- ter- You've got to unpack those words.
1: Uh, you mean, what <laughs> is Resonate spelled with an I or an O? Uh, resonated like with, with resins, like right, with pine okay. resins, and, and terebinth is one of these resins that would preserve the wine. I see. So it was like like a modern day retsina. Uh, mm-hmm. It it wasn't necessarily uh, for its psychoactive properties, but Pat McGovern actually found um, resonated spiked wine from about 5,400 to 5,000 BC. We're talking 7,000 years ago. This comes from Haji Firuz Tepe. In Iran, and so 7,000 years ago, you're already seeing "quote unquote" spiked wine. And then I move on to a, a different data set from Egypt, 3150 BC at Abydos. Pat McGovern releases an article about that in 2009. He found 700 wine jars uh, that were spiked in in this pre-dynastic tomb that belonged to Scorpion the First, and it's spiked with All kinds of things. Savory, wormwood, blue tansy, balm, senna, coriander, germander, mint, sage, and thyme. Which is super weird and a very complex concoction. The same thing happens uh, 1,700 years later at Tel Cabri in Galilee, of all places. Andrew Coe at MIT finds another wine stash. And in 2014, it's dubbed the world's oldest wine cellar. And it's wine that's been spiked with honey, storax, terebinth, again, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, and cinnamon. So the point being, we have scientific evidence to demonstrate that it was very, very common to spike wine in antiquity. That wine is not like our
0: wine, presumably. The, 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 what we taste is wine. Is not what that tasted like. So it's fermented grapes with all this other stuff thrown into it. It's this potion, really, it's this mix of herbs and um, substances and resins. Um, but you you mentioned a word, Galilee, that obviously pricks up one's ears. Um, uh, so you're saying that in fact, that the hardest evidence we have of spiked wine comes from the region in the Holy Land where uh, Jesus emerged. Um, uh, are you saying, and this is where the book gets super controversial, that Jesus himself would have been aware of this kind of wine? And when we hear of wine in the in the New Testament, that they're referring to this kind of wine? Was it, was, well, let me ask you this. Were there other kinds of wine? Were there, was there wine at the time it was like ours, not, not made into this, uh, this lovely
1: concoction of, 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 of various goo. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I get asked this question a lot. Of course, there was table wine, um, ordinary, everyday table wine, uh, both in the Greek world and the Roman world that followed it and inherited that taste for wine. And this beer culture of the barbarians, essentially, moves into this wine culture in the countries that you know today as being famous for wine, like Greece and Italy, etc. And it happens, um, you know, in, in in those classical centuries, during which Eleusis is still thriving, which mm-hmm. is weird, mm-hmm. a throwback to beer and the prehistoric world. But, but wine continues to develop. And would Jesus have been aware of this? I don't see how not. Uh, you, I can't prove it one way or the other. Uh, but, you know, Jesus and his apostles and the disciples who followed were born into a very, very Greek world. In fact, I've been saying recently, it is impossible to understand the origins of Christianity without knowing Greek. That shouldn't be a crazy statement. The New Testament is written in Greek, not in Hebrew. Paul, and his 21 of the 27 letters of the New Testament, is writing in Greek to Greek speakers whose ancestors would have been very familiar with this. And it's not just that we, the best scientific data comes from Galilee, which is crazy, uh, but Uh, there's a manuscript that survives from the first century AD at the exact same time that the Gospels themselves were being written. It's by Dioscorides, writing in Greek, and it's his Materia Medica. It's not some random piece of literature. It is one of the the best preserved uh, and most common manuscripts that survives from antiquity. And in that, uh, the father of drugs is talking about spiking wine. In fact, there are 56 detailed recipes for spiking wine in just one of his books, and he talks about spiking wine with frankincense and myrrh and those witchy plants, henbane, mandrake. Uh, in another part of his book, he talks about black nightshade, and in Greek, he calls it uh, able to produce fantasias u aedais, which means not unpleasant visions. We're talking about psychedelic wine. That's the first century AD, at the exact same time. But I don't, I don't, I didn't
0: hear anything psychedelic in that mix unless, unless Nightshade really is uh, psychedelic. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't don't see ergot in there. I don't, I don't hear um, uh, anything related to DMT. Um, uh, So why would this, I mean, you can imagine it makes you kind of really fucked up in a way, but, but why would it lead to, um, have you, I mean, for example, have you tried to reproduce This guy's um, recipes and and see what happened because presumably they're right there and you could you
1: could you could make them today right so have you done that Uh, personally no but I I looked at the toxicology literature and there is literature so we don't know what black nightshade dioscorides is is referring to he's very clear that it does produce visions he says not unpleasant visions in Greek and we do know that henbane uh, is can be a a pretty trippy henbane and mandrake and these nightshade plants do contain these very dangerous tropane alkaloids, and they can be visionary at, at the right dose. The toxicology literature is full of, of really fun anecdotes about folks who, who've had unfortunate experiences with those plants. So I do call it psychedelic, quote unquote. But it's not um, it's not psilocybin, as far as you
0: can tell. It's, it's not related to DMT. It's, um, it doesn't even have anything to do with MDMA, um or any of the things that we would understand as psychedelics it seems to be a slightly
1: different type of psychedelic is
0: that am i am i am i being too modern here
1: yeah and and i look no no i i looked for i looked for mushrooms Uh, i looked for psilocybin I, i looked for amanita muscaria mushrooms i looked for dmt i'm familiar with those theories about moses and the burning bush i looked for everything and what i found uh, is what I'm presenting to you is this this, this spiked wine mm-hmm. and it wasn't just in Galilee also in Italy I found from the first century a d another rare find of spiked wine from outside Pompeii dated to seventy nine a d again the exact same period where the earliest Christians would have been uh, starting their early congregations do you think they have got... wine uh, that was mixed with this
0: did they sorry i'm yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. Did they? Is there evidence that the recipes from Eleusis might have leaked out? And these were very carefully guarded secrets. Uh, I thought. How would how would the the, the recipes uh, uh, or were they spontaneously created around? And Eleusis was just had a particularly good variety. I mean, we are they all have are they drinking wine to have the same experiences that people had?
1: At Eleusis, or is it different? I think they're similar. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would use the word similar. I think the the experiences that are recorded at Eleusis and also in the mysteries of Dionysus, because this is what we're really talking about here. When you talk about spiked wine, you're talking about the Greek mysteries of Dionysus, uh, distinct but related to the mysteries of Eleusis, because even by the 5th century BC, Dionysus is sneaking his way into the temple at Eleusis. There are all, all these stories developed around... Uh, Dionysus as the holy child of Persephone. Talk about the the, the mother-son relationship there that Christianity later adopts. Uh, you know, so in, in his spiked wine, uh, I, I see different recipes, but relate it to what happened at Eleusis. And we know this because in 414 BC, there's this infamous scandal that became known as the profanation of the mysteries. People, you know, eventually got tired of making this pilgrimage from all over the empire to Demeter's temple at Eleusis. And in 414 BC, in aristocratic homes all over Athens, uh, people like Alcibiades, one of Socrates' star disciples, gets implicated in this affair where they are imitating the mysteries of Eleusis at home, which Mm. was a total sacrilege and could subject you to the penalty of death. And we know from the literature that wine was involved in this imitation. So you're already seeing the secret, the formula, the recipe begin to leak from the temple. And these uh, these would be Greeks,
0: right? Primarily doing this, um, and but but where Jesus was in in what is now Israel, uh, there weren't many Greeks there, right? I mean, Jesus didn't speak Greek, didn't even speak Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic. Um, uh, so Jesus, as a figure, uh, seems quite distant from this very Greek experimentation with with wine. Uh, and yet, you argue in, in in the book that that let me summarize it, <laughs> and you can tell me why I'm summarizing it incorrectly. But um, the the habit of this became that the practice of this became more common, and that one of the ceremonies in which people would use this would be what we would think of as funerary rites that that people would celebrate uh, the death of someone by communing with them and communing with one another and the afterlife and transcendence uh, with wine at feasts that they would hold in commemoration, like really great uh, booze-ups, essentially, to celebrate the death of uh, somebody you cared about. And you see these ceremonies being portrayed in the the catacombs in in Rome, that, that, that these old funerary rites were continuing, possibly with the spiked wine, but they become increasingly or interchangeable with early formations of Christian communion and the Mass. So this is where I begin to get a little more skeptical. Uh, I can see how Greeks who had become uh, converts to Christianity, the Greek diaspora, could possibly some of them at least, and this I think is the, is a crucial thing is, is that. You're not describing this as universal within Christianity. You're describing this as a particular strain of early Christians who would have been deeply influenced by the Greek traditions and, and the mysteries of Eleusis, who would have seen in the death of Jesus possibly a reason to have a ceremony with, with, with a meal that could, rather like the funerary rites in ancient Rome, bring him back. Uh, be in communion with him, in some way. Um, uh, how common was this, do you think, among among early
1: Christians, and where would it have been happening? And and what evidence do we really have that this was going on at all? Right. Uh, so I look at all kinds of different evidence, uh, and I start with the Catholic Encyclopedia from 1907. And in the Catholic Encyclopedia, you you will see there uh, the phrase that uh, our Lord chose to basically use this funeral banquet as the means through which uh, his community of followers could remain faithful to him because this idea of the funerary tradition, and it goes back much further even than ancient Egypt, uh, and it is retained uh, among the Canaanites. We talked about the spiked wine from Galilee. Uh, There's a tradition there called the Marzea ritual uh, where folks are drinking wine to commune with the dead ancestors. Interestingly enough, it shows up in the refrigerium and I think that's really the the strongest evidence. The refrigerium. Continued... Can you can you explain what that is? Right. So uh, I'll I'll use the 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 translation from emeritus professor of history at Yale, Ramsey McMullen, who's now ninety three years old, the world's authority on ancient Rome. He says that the refrigerium was a chill out. Uh, uh, it's where we get the word refrigerator. And in in his <laughs> mind. Uh, This is he said that, you know, they were drinking wine to commune with the ancestors. But in in this paper, he goes he goes further than that. This this is a guy from Yale. He says that the dead themselves participated. It was believed amongst the Romans and amongst the early Greek speaking Christians in and around Rome that the dead came back to life through this ritual called the refrigerium. And I went into the catacombs to look at frescoes and evidence of this refrigerium actually being celebrated. And it's very difficult to tell where the Roman pagan refrigerium ends and the Christianized proto-Eucharistic Mass begins, because in these catacombs controlled by the Vatican, like at the Hippogium of the Aurelii from the 3rd century AD, I went in with a chaperone from the Vatican to inspect these catacombs, and you see uh, a celebration of what looks like a Eucharist. It's It's 12 people, interestingly enough, seated around this table, in this ancient fresco, um, and a woman appearing from the background as if she's returning from the dead. And there in the very front of this fresco is a man holding aloft a chalice. You would think a chalice of wine. It's just this really evocative imagery is blurring the lines between the pagan and the Christian worlds. I looked at dozens of frescoes like that through the catacombs.
0: Now, good Catholic boys like us, however, do know that the Mass was initiated uh, in a Passover supper. Uh, before Jesus's death, uh, and that's the origin of the Mass—the attempt to recreate that moment before his passion and death that brought the disciples together in a room. So, why would that become a funerary ceremony? Why would it not always be understood as a as a, a very Jewish uh, tradition to replicate
1: the the Passover supper? Um, because I don't think it was very Jewish. If, 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 you look, if you look at the Greek of John, for example, he uses very pagan imagery when he talks about the Eucharist. Now, you know, the synoptics describe it one way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John uses very different language to describe it in a very different way. And in Greek, off the top of my head, he says, which means whoever munches on my flesh and drinks my blood shall have eternal life actually it's in the present tense has immortality it's talking about his flesh and blood as this immortality food uh and the word drog there is very very different it's only in john that he uses this word which does not mean to eat my flesh it means to munch and gnaw on my flesh on my bloody flesh it's very evocative of the identical imagery that we have 500 years earlier in the Dionysian Mysteries, with a playwright like Euripides in his Bacchae. He uses very graphic language to describe the maenads, the female followers of Dionysus, uh, tearing the meat from the bone of their sacrificial animals and it was understood by the ancient greeks that to suck this blood was to suck the blood of the god when when jesus floats this idea uh it's not jewish it's it's anathema in the jewish world to consume human blood and flesh as a matter of fact right after the passage i just quoted you when jesus is talking about his eucharist to the the, to the jews assembled there they called a scleros it's right there in john 6 uh, 60. They say "skleros" in Greek, where we get the word "sclerotic." They have no idea what the hell he's talking about because it's not Jewish. There's no Jewish imagery in eating a man's flesh and blood.
0: "Skleros," what does that mean? What is what is the the, the
1: definition of "skleros" in, in Greek? In, in "skleros" in Greek means like difficult or hard to accept. Um, uh, you know, gross. Uh, it's just, it 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 doesn't compute. It makes no sense to to the Jewish audience why Jesus is talking about consuming his blood. Because, again, the consumption of human blood is anathema. Uh, you would never find that at, at a Passover meal. Uh, you do find it in the Greek tradition.
0: Hmm. And you were saying that John was kind of telling his Greek listeners that through this terminology and through these words that in fact, Jesus is also, forgive the term, resurrecting ancient Greek notions of transcendence and doing so through the Eucharist. Um, I mean, is transubstantiation, to take the Catholic doctrine, which, which, which is a strange doctrine when you think about it. It goes back, a, obviously, a very long way. And one wonders, I've always wondered this, like, the, the, you're telling us we're eating and drinking God? And we're not doing it in a symbolic way. This is, this is the whole Reformation was fought over this. We're not doing it in a symbolic way. We are doing it in a real way. We are, new, we are eating this stuff. We are, it's becoming part of us in the body. It's an incredible... The mass is a visceral uh, meal. And it's, it's, it's literally the whole sacramental aspect of Catholicism, which is absent. In Protestantism, absent in many other traditions, is very much the notion that God is in us and with us, and that the world is made by God, and that, and that somehow you're not transcending out of this world, you are somehow finding God through the world, through what you're eating and drinking. And in fact, what you're eating and drinking is God or Godness. Um, and to me, emotionally and psychologically, that is the most compelling point for you because where on earth does this notion that we're eating God possibly come from? Um, And and I know Jesus was uh, a genius, Um, uh, but are you saying, now what 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 were they eating? We know, if you assume that they were drinking wine that was spiked in some way because the wine in Galilee always was. What were they eating? Because eating is is also essential. I, and I, I found this a big gap in your uh book. Like we know what the wine's coming from. Where's where's the body of where's the actual body of Christ coming from?
1: I had I had a whole nother chapter on ergotized bread that, you know, the book is long enough as it is. You and oh, I, I was longing long for the chapter yeah. on
0: ergotized bread because nothing without that I don't get the mass. I mean, for, for the longest time we never drank wine at all at mass. It was it was taken out. You know, the church decided that wasn't necessary. That all you needed was the body and the the, the host itself. The bread was uh, the body of Christ, soul and divinity of Him. Um,
1: right.
0: So you're saying there probably was an ergotized bread part of with the ergotized wine. Um, do we have any evidence of the actual wine being used by early Christians being having any psychedelic elements in it? Uh,
1: we, have, we have literature. Again, mm-hmm. I'm on the hunt for the scientific data, but mm-hmm. in order to make that case, I look at all the circumstantial evidence. And yeah, we have church fathers, beginning with Irenaeus, uh, who are cracking down on the Gnostics, these heretical splinter Christian groups, who are recorded celebrating a very different kind of Eucharist uh, in and around Rome, which is really where the the focus of my attention is. Uh, You know, Irenaeus refers to these heretical sacraments as philta, agogima, uh, like love potions. And then uh, even Hippolytus into the third century AD, in his his refutation of all heresies, uh, he talks about the wine that was mixed by the followers of Marcus, another one of these really famous heretics. And he talks about women consecrating this wine and using drugs in the preparation of their Eucharist. And in fact, he uses the word Greek pharmakon. He uses that word seven times uh, in the Greek. I'll send you the reference where he talks about the Marcosians, drinking some kind of spiked wine. doesn't say it once. He says pharmakon seven times. And that word is very evocative because it, it, it was the word that was used to describe wine for centuries and centuries. As a matter of fact, Ignatius of Antioch in the early second century AD refers to the Eucharist as nothing less than the pharmakon athanasias, the drug of immortality. I don't think that was poetic language. I think that was tapping in to a very pagan, very Greek notion of magical sacraments, because uh, Ignatius of Antioch was writing his letter to the Ephesians, the same Ephesians to whom we think John's gospel was specifically addressed, where we know there was a heavy Greek presence. So when you ask me where in the ancient Mediterranean, I'm looking at Ephesus, and I'm especially looking at Italy and a place like Corinth. Uh, which was not far from Eleusis. You're talking about a very Greek world.
0: Now, are you saying that that the the writers of the Gospels knew all this? Uh, that John, particularly uh, whoever John was, um, was attempting to convert the Ephesians by pandering to them in a way, um, referring, bringing up tropes from Dionysus and that tradition to describe. The new Dionysus, in a way, this uh, this new god, this new person who was God, who initiated them into various secrets. Um, this is where the Gnostics. So, what I'm trying to get at, really, is: was this simply an underground movement of the Gnostics and and a few splinter groups, who happened to be wickedly and heretically taking this these these potions and drugs into their own uh, ceremonies and Heaven knows what happens in those ceremonies. Um, Or is it something that we could say the early fathers of the church um, understood, supported, um, and were a part of? It seems to me the evidence for the latter is less significant than the evidence that this stuff was actually going on. I'm just trying to put it in the context. Um, Obviously, Christianity sorted itself out in the second, third, and fourth centuries in terms of what was orthodoxy and what was heresy. In fact, that's the whole history of Christianity in, in, those, in those terms. But so you were saying this is from an earlier stage. Greek colonists, diaspora in Italy, and I think also in parts of Spain, uh, seem to have uh, be using this. Now, you also have another thing in there about St. Paul telling these people to get their Eucharist under control, that that, that (laughs) some of them are drinking stuff that is causing people to black out or to overdose in various ways. Now, I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't find what you wrote persuasive. I, I, I can't imagine that early Christians were literally overdosing on the Eucharist in such a way that killed them. And you're suggesting there was
1: casualties, fatalities here in the early Eucharist? Uh, that's uh, that. This is what Paul says in First 1 Corinthians 11:30, and I want everybody to Google that and look at the English, uh, because it's very different from what's written in the Greek. In First 1 Corinthians 11:30, Paul is chastising the Corinthians for not properly celebrating the Eucharist, and he says uh, after he says they're drinking from a cup of demons, he says that's why so many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And the word for fallen asleep is koimontai in modern greek you'd say kimontai. and koimontai is the same verb that's used in the famous uh, resurrection of lazarus someone who died and come back to life koimontai means the sleep of death but it does essentially mean to die and i speculate in the book based on scholarship from karl ruck it's not my idea uh, but i speculate that that maybe paul is talking about some kind of lethal wine or if not that uh, this an initiatory practice where it looks like these Corinthians are dead. It looks like they've fallen into one of these cataleptic trances. But my point is
0: here that Paul is saying, cut this out. Paul is saying... Right. Paul is is clearly... And we could argue, and certainly I think it's very persuasive, that some early Christians, influenced by their Greek inheritance, were experimenting with the Eucharist using spiked wine and maybe ergotized bread. And that this also created a... a a sense of unity with Jesus, and also brought Jesus back to life in a way um, and who was among them. Um, uh, but this wasn't mainstream. Uh, no. it, it certainly wasn't what Jesus did, and that's that's the question I want to have. Was the wine that Jesus created at Cana, for example, which is the first miracle um, that he performs? Uh, psychedelic? Was that why he was so celebrated at that party, that that there was water everywhere and suddenly, um, isn't the miracle, water becomes wine, not wine becomes uh, mushrooms? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Cana, uh, because it comes back, again, this is not my thesis, uh, uh, when, when I quote the Gospel of John, and by the way, the miracle at Cana only happens in John. I know, that is very weird. important. It's very, it's, it's very weird. It gets weirder when you combine it with that Greek word trogon I mentioned earlier about gnawing on his flesh or the true vine, right? The true vine only occurs in John uh, or the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God only. There's all these things that only occur in John. Cana is another one of them. Jesus calling um, himself and,
0: the true vine is, is you yeah. know the, the, the analogies that he constantly uses to grapes and wine and the true vine um, is suggestive at least.
1: Uh, and that's all i'm saying that's it's just suggestive in you know and from one catholic boy to another i do not think there was psychedelic wine on the table of the last supper uh i think frankly that is unprovable i'm not even sure how to test it i mean andrew you're talking about trying to find the holy grail no no one's found the holy grail it'll remain the holy grail uh for at least another couple years we'll see but unlike the
0: past we get the holy grail we can actually do testing on it um And I mean, that's the other thing that I think is interesting about what you're saying. The reason why some of this stuff is is so interesting and new is because we actually have the ability now scientifically to test in a way that we've never had before. So we are we're on the cusp of understanding what these people ate and drank. And in some of these circumstances, we can find out early drug use and early psychedelic use as well. And that's what you've discovered in a couple of places. Um, So we have we have this. So, Jesus may not have done that. But, but, but tell me about why he's called Jesus. I mean, how the Greeks understood the name Jesus. Because that's also a, a fascinating uh, dynamic to me. Yeah. The way in which Aramaic, an Aramaic name, because presumably he had an Aramaic name, then becomes Jesus. Uh, what, if, what, what, do you, what, what would the Greeks have made of that name, Jesus?
1: That is that is the exact way to phrase the question. What what, what would the Greeks have made of that name? And in the whole book, Andrew, but I'm asking the question, what would the Greeks have made of the Eucharist? Mm-hmm. And that, that is essentially the, the thesis I'm trying to follow. Mm-hmm. It's not what happened in Jerusalem or Galilee 2,000 mm-hmm. years ago. It's what would the Greeks who were the audience for this stuff, what would they have made of Jesus? And so think they wouldn't have called him Jesus, number one. Uh, there was no J in Greek. So right. he was known as Jesus, Jesus. Now, Jesus is kind of like a Hellenization of the, the Hebrew uh, Joshua, uh, which would have been Yesue. So the, the Greeks are trying to put Jesus into this Hebraic tradition, and it comes out sounding something like Yesus. Uh, now, the thing is, when Yeso, Jesus hits a Greek ear, they would almost immediately think of Yeso, which is the Greek goddess of healing, or Yaso. You know, so, yesu, yesus, it's very it's very similar. Now, Karl Ruck, uh, in some of his earlier scholarship, says that the root of that in Greek is eos. And eos means like toxin or poison or, in fact, drug. And so Karl Ruck translates the Greek word yesus as the drug man, uh, which is not a crazy uh, reading etymologically of Jesus. Well, Jesus does go around healing people. I mean, that's really what he does. He
0: heals. Um, and he creates new faculties in people, the ability for the blind to see, for the lame to walk, um, for those full of their own pride to see uh, their insignificance. And, uh, but what I'm getting at here is simply that the thing that strikes me about the drug experiences and Christianity is that is that you go through these experiences— and what you end up with is something, I and mean, Michael Pollan is really smart about this in his book, where you, you come up with something like love is all you need, <laughs> which is the most banal, cliche, imaginable. Uh, all you need is love. Dude, just let it all go. We're all one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's all be part of this incredibly loving community. And I'm just like, well... That sounds a lot like tripping on mushrooms. Um, and, and, and the ego death that's rec- that happens in, in, in psychedelics is, I think we, we now understand this, not dissimilar to the ego death that can be achieved through decades of meditation, for example, or, or, or decades of religious practice. Um, uh, except it's a very quick artificial route to this stuff. Um, but... If Jesus didn't use this wine, if this was not what Jesus was doing at Cana, if this was not what Jesus was doing at the, then the love of mankind must have come, and that that agape, that uh, that strange understanding of a love of everybody indiscriminately, which is incredibly hard to understand, and, and let alone for us to actually experience, was not rooted in a psychedelic experience. It was rooted in a in in, in some kind of extraordinary enlightenment that Jesus demonstrated. And yet at the same time, let me just vent some of the stuff. You read, you read the stories of Jesus in the desert and the visions he had. But again, and they seem pretty like some of the visions that people have described having ayahuasca, for example. Um, these serpents and these strange mix of humans and animals and, and the devil coming to him and tempting him. Now, it's possible to have these sort of hallucinations and these visions by simply, as you put it in the book, going into a cave and lying down for 26 days, not eating. Uh, and clearly that's what Jesus was doing in the desert, 40 days of starvation, of, of of trying to recreate the possibility of these visions that come to you in that kind of state. Um, uh, so that much I can see, but I don't see Jesus's doctrine or his, his revolutionary approach to existence as something that necessarily has its roots in psychedelia, but might have been, psychedelia might have been used by early Christians to replicate some of that and to feel more at home with him and closer to him.
1: I agree 100%. Thank you. Thank you for, for summarizing <laughs> the, the end of the book. But, you know, this is at the, at the very end of the book, that's when my, uh, my, my Catholic roots come out because we're talking about all these Greek pagan mysteries, right? Mm-hmm. Eleusis, Dionysus, etc. Mm-hmm. I'm looking into the possibility that these earliest Greek-speaking communities would have co-opted the kind of Jesus that they wanted to see to recapture mm. what the Last Supper was all about. Mm. And maybe drugs helped facilitate that. But mm. what, is, what is very, very different about the, the Christian mystery, as I call them, and this, this evocative language in John about this drug of immortality That it's later called by ignatius of antioch what is the real innovation taking place with christianity and as cliche it is andrew it is love when jesus himself is 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 asked you know the greatest commandment he says love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself right if you have five seconds to describe Jesus' message that's what it is and that is very very different from the mysteries of dionysus and the mysteries of Eleusis and everything that precedes Christianity. And that is what I cannot wrap my mind around. That is a revolutionary principle, right? To love your enemy, to turn the cheek. And that I can't get over. It's
0: not just loving random people.
1: It is loving people who
0: hate you. It is that extra step. It's also not just um, uh, being poor, but embracing poverty. It's about ceasing to protect yourself it's about extreme vulnerability to others, uh, which does require a huge surrender of the ego, which is most of us are simply incapable of for most of our lives. Um, to see the perspective from the other, to feel a oneness with God and godness, um, which is this universal calm and peace and love. I mean, the other thing that always strikes me is what Jesus is getting at is um, his constant invocation of peace. Peace be with you. Um, in so I think it's among the most common things he says. Um, as if he brings with him this, and you get the sense in the Gospels too, of this extraordinary calm that surrounds him, in which all most human emotions kind of just evaporate a little bit, and you have this sense of of God among us. Um, now. Could he have had, being in Galilee in the center of wine, spiked wine country, have experienced this kind of wine? What do you think about it? I mean, pr- presumably it's quite likely that he would have drunk some wine like this, right? Because this is, this is what they drank in that region.
1: Yeah, listen, I think it's a distinct possibility. We, we can't prove it right now. I want Andrew Coe at MIT to find some more vessels in Galilee from the first century AD so we can get closer to the truth. Uh, you know, But it's worth saying this. Before, during, and after the life of Jesus, the mysteries of Dionysus did exist in Galilee. As a matter of fact, Dionysus in the mythology comes from lots of different places in the ancient world, but one of them is Scythopolis which door to door today from Nazareth to Schizopolis is 40 minutes, right? So there were the Dionysian mysteries very close to the homeland of Jesus. And in a place like Schizopolis, you do find remnants of this Dionysian tradition. Um, uh, you know, And I say before, during, and after, because from the 2nd century AD, just to the north of Nazareth, uh, we have one of these archaeological finds uh, called the Dionysus House, of all places. And in there, these mosaics of, of Dionysus drinking the wine. And so we do know that the mysteries were there. We do know that it, it's kind of the Napa Valley of the ancient world of this spiked wine. So, I mean, it's a possibility, which is why you know I present this book as kind of proof of concept for the scientists to go and take a look to see whether it's true or not.
0: Are we really on the brink of really figuring this stuff out? I mean, Presumably what we have now, which we didn't have before, are these advanced chemical and uh, biological testing uh, capacities so that we can we can drill down on what they were eating and drinking. Um, uh, but if your thesis is simply... John was using the legacy of Dionysus to, to communicate more directly with certain Greek speakers... Uh, and was not directly referring to psychedelic materials in terms of a mushroom or ergotized bread or ergotized wine, then the thesis is interesting, but not really revolutionary, right? I mean, it it doesn't actually upend uh, Jesus' divinity. It doesn't upend... uh, It certainly upends the church's fixation on stamping out alternative routes to experiencing the divine, right? I mean, it shows that the church recognized this was happening early on. When I say the church, I mean a very amorphous group of people in the Mediterranean in the first, second, third centuries. Um, And their response was, cut this out, suppress it, get rid of it. Um, Obviously because it gave people a path to salvation, which didn't require priests, it didn't really require the hierarchy, and it's a very female... Oriented, but we know that early Christianity was unusually uh, influenced by women, and 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 we also see in the Gospels another shocking thing that the Gospels have, which is that women are so central to uh, Jesus's ministry, Mary Magdalene in particular, um, and of course the the people to who who first are told about the resurrection, the people that he greets and tells that I am risen, all women. Men don't. In fact, the men doubt it. The men don't believe it um, uh, when they're first told this. Um, so maybe there were a bunch of women Christians back in the day that were making the spiked wine and 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 having it to reflect and maybe buttress their own understanding of Jesus's sense of agape that the church got freaked out about and tried to stamp out. Um, and then your argument, just to finish up, uh, is, is that these women, this 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 secret phalanx, in, in a way, of, of of women, especially older women, that had these skills, then kind of disappears into the background in a way, gets removed from religion, and these people become witches. These people become the the dangerous uh, subverters of Christianity. They become the people who are poisoning the Eucharist with drugs. Who are clearly um subversive uh that the church has to stamp out i mean one thing that just suddenly lit light bulbs up in my head that the frogs now we know we we have all these ideas of witches and frogs putting them in the you know bubble bubble toil and trouble all that stuff that 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 macbeth that you see in macbeth uh, those classic kind of witches well clearly they're real i mean these things come from somewhere right i mean the, these logic of witches these old and they're also they're old hags right to use use a pejorative term, but that's roughly what they're talking about, these old hag, like in like in, in Snow White, uh, this old hag that has an apple that you eat again, it's eat, it's all the stuff these women cook and create that you eat. So that this last mystery of, of Eleusis, this last Dionysian mystery, sort of greets and Interacts with early Christianity in a way that 's kind of fascinating and interesting and merges in some ways with the Eucharist, but then is stamped out and dies away now i've in my fantasies I think is this are these psychedelics the way back into Christianity for moderns hmm. since 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 uh the uh, uh the notion, the nineteenth-century notion, that we believe these things because they factually are true, and we could th- discover them, and they happened all these years ago, and don't you dare deny it. And then once we have the revolution of science and historiography, and we find out the date of these different documents for the Bible, when we find out um, uh, uh, that these things didn't happen or couldn't have happened, or they were told hundred years after he, or th- several years after he died, we begin to understand all of that it it loses its enchantment this is the, the phrase that, that, that the enchantment of the middle ages, the enchantment of old faith, when you really did tangibly believe this stuff, how do you revive enchantment, that's the great challenge for Christianity, how do you get the modern mind to let go and see in fact that this visionary of 2,000 years ago is the path back to salvation and happiness and and the thing that holds us all together and i do i'm just i'm one of these rare people that was that has been a believing christian my whole life and has done psychedelic drugs (laughs) so which of course not many people do but i have to just tell you and let's talk about this i mean i'm overwhelmed with these drugs of the truths of christianity i did ketamine once and was completely consumed with the notion of the trinity trying to understand the Trinity. I did ecstasy once in a club and just tried to understand incarnation, which is absolutely central to Catholicism, right? Incarnation. That means in the flesh. It means God is fleshy. It's like, it's really right here. It's in your body. Uh, There is no dichotomy between the body and the soul. We're all part of the same system. And it has helped me in fact, I would say that in some ways, it, it was the first time I understood intuitively and emotionally what agape means or could mean, uh, in which my defenses were really taken down, in which my ego, this this source of pride, everything that, that Christians seek to fight against was released. Part of me also had the sense that this was a cheat. You know, I'm cheating. I'm, I'm just getting this quick trip to... to to sublime peace and calm. Uh, but at the same time, I the Gospels made much more sense to me after doing psychedelics than they did before. And that's the insight that I am challenged by um, and interested by. Uh, now, you, I don't know where your faith life is or, or, or what happened to it, um, and you've never done these drugs, so you don't have that overwhelming sense that Jesus is right. This is, this, everything he said makes total sense. Let go. Don't be concerned. Be peaceful. God loves you. There is nothing deep down you need to be afraid of, including death. Um, and this, his astonishing poise which I think is the real story of the passion. It's not, It's not. you know, Parche Mel Gibson. It's not, the passion is not about how much can you damage, can you do to a human body. What's interesting is Jesus is, according to the gospel accounts, utter composure through the entire thing. Like, he's not afraid of this. I think two of the early Christians who who were clearly persecuted and murdered and never never relinquished this knowledge that they had that God was great and they couldn't go back to worshiping Roman gods or, or, or performing the civic obligations otherwise because they were so dry and meaningless in comparison with the revolution of, of Agape. Um, so I don't want the Catholic Church to put psilocybin in the communion wine Although part of me wonders what would happen if they did um, and allowed the mass to continue for however long the psilocybin seemed to endure and have people engage one another or, or whatever, or whatever rituals you would have. You I've never been that talkative in these things. I want to contemplate and, and think. Um, uh, but do you think this connection can be made? I mean, if it's only made by freaks like me who are... Thoroughly heretical at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a practicing homosexual, i quite good at it at this point and, and, uh, uh, and interested in psychedelics, but I can't get out of my head, this extraordinary and bizarre
1: sense that when I take these psychedelic drugs, all I hear is the voice of Jesus. Andrew, I'm having a psychedelic experience right now. This is why I don't do drugs. You know, I, I mean, as long as you're a good practicing homosexual, let's throw some drugs on top of it. And, and I think, I mean this seriously, I think Pope Francis uh, would be moved by your story. And I think the, the many, many priests, and I talked to many priests at the Vatican. I talked to lots of Greek Orthodox priests. I, I think they'd be very moved by your story. And it's part of the reason that I wrote this book. Now, the Eucharist works for lots of people. Uh, I'm, I'm not blaspheming the Eucharist. Uh, and by talking about all these heretical, subversive sects that were, that were suppressed in the history of Christianity, I'm not trying to say anything subversive. What I'm saying is that it appears to me that there were alternative Eucharists out there that worked for some people. Uh, now, about my own drug use and my own faith, I'll say this. Uh, in the very beginning of the book, I interviewed Dinah Baser, Uh, who's one of these volunteers who had psilocybin in the Hopkins experiments. She's an atheist. She describes herself as an atheist. And yet, when I was talking to her and I asked her about her psilocybin experience, she says it was as if she was bathed in God's love. And I say, why would an atheist use the word God? And she says, that's the only word I can come up with. It's as good as the love of the cosmos, the love of nature, the love of Mother Earth, etc. She says she's bathed in God's love. Now, I've never done psychedelics, but I absolutely know what it means to be bathed in God's love. It's been my entire life. I'm not supposed to be learning Latin and Greek. I'm not supposed to go on this mystery. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. My mom didn't go. My dad didn't go. I'm the middle son of three boys. My older brother didn't go. My younger brother didn't go. You know, I'm a walking freaking miracle, man. This shouldn't have happened to me. And I was recruited on these scholarships to study this stuff. My weird identity crisis is that it's the Jesuits who gave me Latin and Greek. And it's the Jesuits who asked me to question the origins of our faith. Because if you don't question it, what good is faith if it's untested? So I asked these questions, but at my root, uh, I've had many mystical experiences. And when I listen to your story, and I listen to Dinah Baser, and the many, many volunteers who've gone through these psilocybin experiments, I see an opportunity for the church. And the opportunity that I see is this, cr- this crazy figure that 69% of American Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation. You know, the, the church is, is nothing without the Eucharist, without transubstantiation. People don't believe it, Andrew. Uh, Now, maybe you're one of them, maybe I'm one of them, but lots of people don't. What does happen to atheists uh, all of a sudden in six hours and is imprinted on their psyche for a lifetime is the love of God. Now, imagine a rigorously controlled program of psychedelic chaplaincy. Where the catholic church can lead its congregation not every sunday i'm talking about this as a once in a lifetime event something you prepare emotionally and psychologically for two years at least before your psilocybin experience for example and during that process it's not just medically trained personnel it's it's your chaplain it's your priest it's your pastor it's your minister it's your rabbi walking you through this experience in my case i would engage the spiritual exercises of saint Ignatius. For a month before and a month after by the way and this whole thing it would for me would be like a five-year experience with psilocybin at the very center of it and i mean that's what i want to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to and i hope pope francis will join you and me in this conversation
0: uh yes i do too and I, it's almost like a harsh you're talking about a, a, something you do once in your lifetime that some, oh, like the Temple of Eleusis, but that was annual, right? That was an annual thing. So it, and certainly- It was
1: once a year, but it was only once in your life.
0: Right. Yes. Okay. That, that seems to me to be perfectly possible if we can overcome this notion that drugs, that these things are drugs, and they're in this category called dangerous drugs that subvert religious faith that are all about hedonism and pleasure and goofing off and being unserious and not and escaping the world as opposed to and that's tr- there are plenty of drugs um substances which do have that effect no one is 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 doing uh, doing magic mushrooms 10 times a day because they just can't stop <laughs> it, there is n- there is no addictive nature to this in fact you if you do them once you don't want to do them again for quite a while uh because the the Spiritual experience is so intense, you just need it. It's with you. It stays inside of you for a long time. And I think of it as a, as a discovery of a place that you're forced to go to. And once you've been there, let's call it the mountaintop. Once you've been to the mountaintop, everything else is okay. Everything else is in its perspective. Because inside, you can always go back to the mountaintop. You can remember it. You know it's there. You know that however lost you are right now, however miserable, that there is that place. It's the place, certainly in my own spiritual life during the AIDS epidemic, it was what I called the place where plague couldn't get me, where I could rise above the fear of death. And I think maybe the place to start here is death, that that the extraordinary ability of psilocybin, I call it that, i psilocybin, psilocybin, whatever, that Giving it to end-of-life patients seems to generate an incredible serenity with respect to your own mortality. And we could start there as a way to, as the Greeks understood it, to, to, to learn how to die before you die and then be mm-hmm. completely unafraid of death. Uh, but, of course, it's a tragic thing that you only figure that out three weeks away from your from your demise, um, it would be wonderful to have that sense of understanding, that mountaintop experience that can continue throughout your, your whole life.
1: Um, that, that's the whole point of my book. And the very first page, you may have seen the, the epigraph in, in Greek, anpethanis, primpethanis, dentapathanis, tampetanis. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. That is the key to immortality it's i mean it's a whole book about drugs that's not about drugs but think about, about
0: think about christianity's insistence that he has overcome death that the that the the, the the core of the Christian faith is that death is not to be feared um that this is a that where we are now is a is a a tiny speck of our general spiritual existence um forever mm-hmm. that eternity is constantly present um and uh that that this notion that life is about doing things and then unfortunately you can't do them anymore and you die which is sort of roughly the modern view <laughs> you just keep doing and doing and doing maybe earning more money achieving this doing that having well, whatever you do in life, and then boom you're gone it's scary as hell in a way and that's why people like philip larkin these atheists can write so movingly about the terror of death um uh, this is about overcoming that. This is about living eternally in the present. Um, and the insight that these drugs provide into that is, is staggering. And the other thing I would say is that one thing about Catholicism that's, that's, that's always stuck with me is exactly this word sacrament. Like, what is a sacrament? It is, it is a piece of, it's a thing it's a, it's a flesh blood thing it's a, it's a it's an organism it, it's a, it's a it's food it's it's wine it's water um and we catholics believe that god can be in that substance and that by ingesting that substance we become like god and that is such a strange idea that i can only really begin to make sense of it through your through this book and through uh through the notion that, that that human beings have encountered material substances that have given them transcendent experiences so that it doesn't seem like this dichotomy
1: that's that's the promise that that, that is the promise of Jesus. This is why I was quoting you that weird Greek language about Throgon and munching on the flesh of, of Jesus. It's not that you become like God, you become God in John 656. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and emoimene, gago and auto, he says in Greek, remains in me and, and I in them. We become one. That is the communion that's being promised here. The promise of Jesus is nothing less than apotheosis, becoming God. And the, the word that was used to describe that flesh and blood in Latin is sacramentum, uh, sacrament, which meant like an oath or a pledge, but it comes from the Greek. You won't find that in the Greek. In the Greek, it's mousterion interestingly enough, which means mystery, right? And the Thayer Greek to English uh, lexicon, which you'll find to help translate the New Testament, defines musterion this way. It's it's like it's privileged information, right? That is only accessed by the initiate and is not to be communicated by them to ordinary mortals, which is a mouthful, but it essentially means this stuff at some point was secret. Mm. Uh, You know, Christianity was born with a secret, even in the very canonical Mark. In Mark 4.11, when Jesus is speaking in parables, you know, Jesus speaks in riddles, right, Andrew? Mm -hmm. First of all, he never wrote anything down. And when he's recorded talking, it's in riddles, it's in parables. And in Mark 4.11, when he's asked why he talks this way, he says it's because it's a musteria. It's a secret. He's trying to invite you along to this spiritual adventure where, where things aren't quite what they seem. And at the center of it is the Eucharist. It's the Eucharist and nothing else. I love the the writings of N.T. Wright. I'm sure you've read Mm -hmm. him. He says that, you know, the Eucharist is the thing around which his life is oriented. Uh, Pope Francis says it is essential for salvation. I mean, we're talking about the Eucharist and nothing else. Uh, You know, the promise of Jesus is this drug of immortality that makes you God. And weirdly, Experiences that mimic that are popping up in these laboratories mm. at Hopkins and NYU and UCLA as terminal cancer patients are facing death. Dinah Baser didn't just say she was bathed in God's love. She said that she had this insight that every moment is an eternity of its own. And when I heard that, I think Gospel of Thomas, the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth and we do not see it. It's right here. It's right now. And there are ways to access that, I believe. Mm
0: a couple of final thoughts. How does this reflect upon the resurrection? Are, are, are we to believe that for the followers of Jesus, I mean, when we when people tell me, well, the resurrection is he got up, dusted off, <laughs> took off his funeral robes and walked out and had a stroll in the, uh, in the cemetery there at Golgotha um, uh, or near Golgotha. And, uh, and yet, when I read the actual Gospels, uh, that's not how he appears. He, he can come in and out of walls. He can, he can, he can disappear instantly. He can be in and what seemingly seems to be another person entirely on the road to Emmaus when these two disciples are ch- chatting along with this guy, and then they, they, they have no idea who he is, and he's sort of strange, and they, they, they settle and they have a meal. And it's at the meal that they realize this is Jesus. We had no idea. He's right here. Um, and then he's gone. These are mystical experiences of experiencing Jesus as if he didn't die, as if he's absolutely with us because you have so transcended your own mortality that you're in touch with this eternity in the moment. And that is what the resurrection really does mean. It's not a magic trick, it's an overcoming of death, um, which of course is a fantastic idea. You can, if human, what have humans always ultimately been scared of their death? It's the most irrational crazy thing in our lives. Why do I just expire? Why do I disappear from the face of the earth? What on earth makes sense of that? Well the only thing that can make sense of that is not that someone digs out of their own grave, uh, but that, that person essentially is not just this physical being. That's where the person resides for a while, but is part of this eternity. Um, and Jesus showed that and, and proved it to these people. And maybe the early psychedelic Eucharist is a way of, of recreating that sense that he's still here, even though for others it seems that he's still, I mean, for many people today without drugs, he is absolutely still here. Um, do you think there was anything, anything to do with the resurrection in, involving these psychedelic forces? I think that
1: that's the core of it. <laughs> uh, that it. It's the core of the mystical read of not just the Gospel of John, but all, all Christian literature across time. It, it's the read of the saints and the visionaries uh, who who've pro- pro- professed this faith for 2,000 years. It's, it's the conquering of death and nothing else. And this is uh, the, the C.S. Lewis writes beautifully about this. I mean, it is nothing else but conquering death. And the point I try to make in the book is that the Greeks had the same idea. And when, when you ask Plato, uh, and I've seen your library, and I know you have lots of Plato. When, when you ask Plato how to define philosophy, what does he say in the Phaedo? He says that those who engage with philosophy in the right way are practicing nothing else but dying and being dead. With or without a psychedelic Eucharist, this tradition was also present among the Greeks. You know, whether it was at Eleusis or not, there were other traditions, incubation techniques, cave techniques of entering into the subconscious or the underworld, as they called it, and having this epiphanic vision of the goddess. They were obsessed with death and meeting death in this lifetime in the here and now because to them, death was a window into eternity. Why is an atheist in New York using the exact same language when I ask her about her psilocybin journey. I don't know, uh, but there's a connection there and it's worth exploring.
0: And it's worth
1: Christians understanding that, yeah, have this drug experience,
0: but let me, does that not, does it now not make more sense to you, what Jesus was saying? Does it not seem more intuitively connected to you? Um, people say that these experiences change them forever. They are are born again through these experiences, not by some psychological trick, um, not by some will, but by by seeing things they didn't previously see, feeling things they didn't previously feel. And that's what I think in some ways is what Jesus did. He he literally opened, I mean, we're told he literally healed people for sight, but it's quite possible for me to understand that the people he was around simply by the virtue of the way he was not what he said not what he preached but the way he lived that so overwhelmed and impressed them that he was clearly at a, at a spiritual level far above beyond anybody uh else um but still i do like the idea of him boozing up a cana and putting a whole bunch of spiked shit in the wine and them all having a really good time and 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 that's also what's so great about it it's like you know it's 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 you don't have to be totally uptight and, and completely averse to pleasure or to happiness on earth to be a Christian, which is this horribly, you know, Victorian idea that we 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 get into. Um, it's about actually being here and alive, in the fullest way, and not being afraid anymore. Well, Brian, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm so. It's a great blessing to have met you at Penn Station all those years ago and to have continued this dialogue and to be another middle child, actually, of parents who never went to college um, and brother and sister who didn't either and to and to be in touch with uh, what I, I'm striving to actually believe and not believe in the sense that I'm just gonna take these words and absorb them and memorize them and repeat them as if they're true, but to feel and experience truth in this way. And I would like to use this podcast just to say to my listeners, many, most of whom are atheists, of course, um, and many of whom will be Christians who are horrified by what I, we've just been talking about, for which I apologize. But the point of this podcast is to talk about anything we want, to be completely unafraid of what we're talking about, not to mind in any way if we offend god knows how many people but to try to get to the truth and that's the goal of this ongoing series of conversations and i have to say you in the beginning of this is 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 a wonderful thing and um you've written a book that i want to insist to my readers and to listeners this is not some kooky ass book from some hippie who decided jesus was tripping This is not what this book is about. It is a book of rigorous scholarship, textual analysis, uh, botanical chemistry, you name it, all the skills of modern science to understand something that humans have always understood and has been part of humanity forever. and. Uh, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's it's, it's also not written in a dry way. It's written as your own journey and discovering this, all the people you spoke to, all the places you went to, and it's kind of a fun read in that that sense. It's a mystery, really. It's a mystery book of adventures. Um, But I think what you've written is actually much more important than other people might realize at this point, and that this is the beginning of a movement for the success and spread of Agape. And it, and it seems to me that we've never been more in need of it, that it's as if, if we do not master this peace, if we do not master this way of living, we're going to destroy ourselves and our entire civilization in a way that previous civilizations could not. We must love one another or die, in other words, and to, to quote. And this helps people love each other and gain perspective that enables them to resist the temptations of power, violence, and all the other things that plague our world. Um, so, Brian, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for being here. Uh, the book is The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name by Brian C. Murarescu. I'm glad we went into all the detail at the beginning of the podcast because I do think it's important to lay out the history of this and, and, and what's solid and what isn't. But please read us enjoy it. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.